Hello, everybody. Welcome to our, is this our fourth or fifth? I think this is actually our fifth premiere episode. Yeah, no. Because we have TOS, TAS, TNG, Deep Space Nine, and now Star Trek Voyager, Season 1, Episode 1, uh, Caretaker. This is Matthew. This is Kevin. And this is Kelly, unabashed Voyager lover. Yes. Well, I'm also an unabashed Voyager lover. Um, and uh, I'm not, I'm not a vo- okay. I'm not the Voyager hater I used to be. <laughs> Kevin's a Voyager tolerator. Yeah, I, I I accept Voyager for what it is. Uh, there are many things to like about this series, and we will review them in due course. So, uh, just to set up what we're doing, um, just because we didn't want to wait forever to get to Voyager, um, what we're gonna do is we'll now do a season of Voyager. Um, after the concurrent season of Deep Space Nine. So this season, season one of Voyager overlaps with season three of Deep Space Nine, which we just finished with our review of Adversary. So we'll do season one of Voyager, and then we'll pick up season four of Deep Space Nine when we're back. Yeah, in terms of release, uh, Caretaker <clears throat> premieres right before, is it Life Support? Life Support, yeah. Life Support in season three of Deep Space Nine. So it was a mid-season pick up if you want to call it that although it really wasn't picked up because it was the flagship show of the new upn network uh memories <laughs> uh, which then became the less new cw network which then became nothing yeah <laughs> uh so hey you know i don't think voyager can be blamed for the fall of the well, UPN. I, I, I remember all the other shows that premiered on upn and they were awful yeah i believe voyager was the literally the only show to get a second season on on upn <laughs> Like, nothing else made it out of infancy. Yeah, I, I would pay money if either of you could name another premiere. Uh, well, I'm thinking it's WB. America's Next Top Model didn't no, come that out was, until the That was on w- WB. That was on WB. I got it, got it. Which then was part of CW. Which became part of yeah, CW. Because yeah. they merged. Yeah, so, you know, Paramount wanted to create a united Paramount network early on. And they wanted Star Trek. Uh, phase two, the uh, resumption of the original series in the late 70s to be the flagship show of their Paramount network in the 70s. Those plans got scrapped, probably for the better. You know, it, it, uh, what would it have been? I mean, there might have been interesting stories, but there would have been a lot of 70s cheese. Oh, yeah. I, I, just think, it, I think it would have been a lot like Space 1999, if you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Well, Everything I've seen about Star Trek Phase 2 indicates it was kind of a warmed-over original series. Like, it just, I think the time and the distance and the fresh blood eventually brought to TNG was for the best. There would have been a lot of feathered hair. Yo, dear. <laughs> the outfits would have been awesome. Well, actually, the, the uniforms that they used were very similar to TOS. They, they hadn't done the movie thing. Yeah. Those were created just for the movie. Um, I, I, I can still recall to this day UPN's logo, the like circle, the triangle, square, and I remember that it took over Channel 50 that showed Next Gen in Chicago. I remember because mm. that was that was the thing. I remember that there were a couple of barely not like big markets like New York or LA, but there were some mid-sized markets that I think couldn't get Voyager right away uh, because they didn't have a UPN affiliate. I remember reading in one of the now extinct Star Trek magazines that there were several markets that couldn't watch Voyager at least in the first season as it aired, because they didn't have a local UPN affiliate. Yeah, and in Chicago, uh, Deep Space Nine was airing on WGN. Which became the WB here. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, although it's remained WGN 
and showed WB programming. Right, right. Yeah. So it was syndic because it was still, still syndicated. Yeah. So, all right. I'm sure that was all very interesting to all of you. Um, <laughs> well, well, I didn't know any of that. <laughs> well, Kevin and I did grow up in the same TV uh, broadcast area, so and yeah. watched Star Trek when it aired. Yeah, uh, I did watch Voyager in its entirety when it aired. As I think uh, the last season. Um, that was my first year of college, so I think I got that tape delayed from my parents. My parents would, yeah. would VHS it for me off of TV and then bring me the tapes every six weeks or so when a, when a VHS tape got full. Yeah, that is how I got the end of Voyager. Um, you know, it, it was created by Rick Berman, Michael Piller, and uh, Jerry Taylor, um, three creators who, you know, they've they've had their ups and they've had their downs, but we respect all of them especially Jerry Taylor. Um, this seems like a labor of love for Jerry Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it a good moment to discuss Mosaic, one of my favorite Yeah, we might as novels? well. You know, there, so there's a series Bible, and the series Bible was basically a, a crib sheet version of Jerry Taylor's novel, yeah. uh, Mosaic, which was sort of a, a pastiche of character stories in which – they all end up on Voyager, but it's really their backstory. That's Pathways. That, That's uh, Pathways. And Mosaic is just, just Janeway. Janeway. Oh, okay. And I, well, I've read both, and they're both quite. The, good. Yeah, they're both really good books. She's a she's a good novelist. Uh, she she's an excellent writer, and she I think had good instincts in creating the characters. And I think Kelly will agree with me here. You know, as far as the basic bare bones of character outlines being interesting. This is the equal of TNG and better than Deep Space Nine. I I'll, I will give you that. I believe the characters are better sketched out, and 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 I think that's just Deep Space Nine doing a different um, thing. Like we eventually talked about the distinction of you know character stories versus event stories and what have you. But um, no, certainly the the my problem with Voyager was never the characters, except for maybe Neelix, who occasionally annoyed me so much I wanted to punch him right in the throat. But aside from that my problems tended to be more sort of structural uh, story issues, but the characters themselves certainly very well sketched out and anticipating Kelly's enti uh, entirely valid <laughs> comment, certainly the most authentic, realistic, non-ridiculous portrayal of women in franchise history. Yeah. I mean, I, I like some of the female characters on TNG, but they do tend to be very, you know, like, I'm the emotional one, and, you know, then there's Tasha Yar, who's the, the hard sort of 80s feminist, and, you know, so the women on Voyager are real women in a way that you still don't see on TV. Like, not 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 again until, like, Laura Rosslin in the first two seasons of Battlestar do you yeah. really see such a, especially woman in power. Yeah. And, and I'll give you that. that. Something I always liked about their portrayal of Janeway is um, she's... She's not overly ambitious. She's not overly a hard ass. She's certainly more, I think, emotive than Picard. Um, but she's not less powerful because of it. She, it, it yeah. And I think a lot of the credit goes to the actress as well. But I think they walked a very good line of there's a tendency when you portray, um, you know, a, a woman or a minority in, in a hero position where you have to make them flawless or it feels like you're delegitimizing the idea of them being heroes. Mm -hmm. And only a few times do I think they really cross that line where it's like you, you just you, you almost cost realism at the extent of trying to portray the character. But overall, I thought she did a really good job of seeming like a real person in a position of power who was in a universe where she wasn't trying to prove anything. 
Yeah, and she was a different kind of leader than a Picard or a Kirk. But I don't think it was necessarily because she was a woman. You know, there could have been male captains who were just as right. involved I mean, with their crew members, uh, Kirk and just Picard, as nurturing. Yeah, they're, they're two different kinds of captains. Yeah. Their life experiences made them different people, and I have no trouble getting that. Um, I mean, even Bolana, where I thought, you know, sometimes the stories weren't as developed for her as I would have liked, but the actress I thought did a great job of even, even as being the aggressive one, it never read as like a, like two dimensionally bitchy. No, um, I mean, her aggressiveness was based on her character story. You know, she was alienated and, you know, felt abandoned and, you know, like all these different things that were parts of her story. They didn't have anything to do with her being a female. Right. And even, even aside from her Klingonness, like her bad attitude kind of had a basis, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I'd be pissy too. Um, so that, that all made sense. Um, and, uh, I'll get to this more in full in season three, but even, even seven of nine, who I expected to just be tits and ass. Yeah. And no, she was great. Like the, like her character arc, I would put her up there with Data or Spock in terms of, you know, the the non-human exploring humanity character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, Jerry Taylor was a key influence in creating deep characters from the get-go. I think the other big thing that Berman, Pillar, and Taylor were trying to do is to kind of return Star Trek to its roots a little bit having it really be seek out new life, new civilizations, boldly go, you know, because to some degree TNG kind of stayed on trails that had already been blazed. You know, it's like, now we're going to tell a Romulan story. Now we're going to tell a Klingon story, you know, and that's stuff that TOS had already done. And then deep space nine was its own separate animal. You know, it's not about exploration. It's about, you know, living somewhere. Right. Um, You know, so, in, in many ways, Voyager, to me, is one of the Star Trekkiest. There's more trekking in Voyager in stars, yeah. <laughs> than, than in basically any series besides TOS. Uh, and there's more than TOS, I would say. Uh, now, as Kevin has uh, you know, pointed out, there are structural problems with maybe the number of times they return to certain aliens and, you know, We'll get there when we get there. We don't have to talk about that now. Uh, but I think it was a, just a basically a good idea. Certainly, yeah. I, I have no problems with – I think I remember my concern going in was that um, – Is it going to be Gilligan's Island? Yeah. yeah. And and in fact, if you there's I remember in one of the behind-the-scenes specials, one of the Okudogram labels on a panel actually has – various lyrics of the theme song written on them as a little in-joke. And I, I get that. Like, my concern was that every week was going to be, will they get home? Oh, no, they won't. Well, and they did do that two or three times in the first season, especially with the micro-wormhole episode. Yeah. Um, and so I think they got away from that, thankfully. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's always a worry. There were only two or three times where it was so egregiously dumb that they didn't that it threatened to make you not care ever again. Uh, and at least two of those, you know, one is threshold and the other is uh, a Q episode, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway. And which I think the, the other big player in Voyager is Brandon Braga, who, um, you know, he was the head, he was the head writer, correct? 
But he eventually became head writer, yeah. Um, so I, I think it's safe to say, and we've made this comparison before, Deep Space Nine is Ron Moore's baby in much the same way that Voyager is Brandon Braga's in terms of the types of stories and the tone of the stories. And if I had to sort of crystallize my criticisms of Voyager, they're going to sound very similar to our criticisms of the lesser Brandon Braga outings in Next Gen. I think he started to have a bigger role in season three and season four. Uh, he was he kind of shepherded the Seven of Nine character yeah. and eventually, I believe, dated Jerry, he, he Jerry did, Ryan. Dated Jerry Ryan. Um, and we don't have to get into that whole thing with Jack Ryan and the <laughs> sex clubs and, you know... Barack Obama winning, uh, like it paved a way to interesting things in, in the, American history. But <laughs> you know it, and again, you might wonder. It's like, oh well, you know, the the showrunner or the head writer is is stupping, you know, the actress that's selected for the part. You know, does that mean she sucks? And no, no, she was great. She's a heck of an actress. You know, so it, I'm perfectly willing to believe that that was incidental. You know, yeah, I don't believe she was married or started like she had been, she was divorced when I think she, she started. She was already separated yeah. at least. Yeah, and then they didn't start dating until later in the run. But but anyway, like I think a lot of my problems with Voyager tend to crystallize around the over-reliance on the reset button and um j- just a general lack of like, there's a lack of consequences for things. Yeah, which which I think look, I I remember watching the first season of Battlestar Galactica and thinking to myself this is kind of what Voyager should have been. I, I thought that when I watched Year of Hell, where there was a real sense of this is wearing these people down and there's a consequence for that. And I kind of wish, and again, I don't need, I'm fine with a happier, go luckier Star Trek because Deep Space Nine could be a bit of a bummer. So I was fine. I, I can accept that, you know, Voyager tends to just fare better generally because it's just that tone of the show, I would appreciate it a little longer term consequence because it, like for the first six episodes, they hammer, we have 32 torpedoes. We have 31 yeah. torpedoes. We have all the torpedoes we're ever going to need. Like it just, they, they kind of got away from those things to the extent they try to do it. In the yeah. And I get that. And I respect that for me as a viewer, I like episodes that just sort of start and end all on their own and don't require you to remember what happened five seasons ago. And so that's one of the things I think I probably really like about Voyager. And I, I understand, yeah, yeah, they did get away from the torpedo thing and the lack of resources and all of that. But, you know, I, I'm willing to just not care about those sorts of things. Well, it, it wouldn't have been a sin if they hadn't mentioned it so many times early on. Sure. Yeah. Had, it, had, had we just taken it as read that they can replicate torpedoes or they found third mark, you know, they voided their warranty by buying third-party torpedoes, I would have been fine with that. But they they laid into it so heavily, those first few episodes, that it was noticeable later on. I, I will say this, and, and Matt and I have talked about this before, I do like Deep Space Nine more, and I'm prepared, even if my numbers work out that Voyager is statistically <laughs> better, I will still continue to like Deep Space Nine more. Um, sure. But Voyager is more casually, excuse me, I'm about to say watchable than Deep Space Nine. And when I want to watch Deep Space Nine, I pick a starting point, and that's what I'm that's what I have on that afternoon while I do laundry and you know pay my bills because that is an investment. Whereas it's much easier to just watch an episode of Voyager as a one off. Yeah. Much in the same way I can watch an episode of Next Gen as a one off. All right. Well, I think we should. Go ahead and get started here. Um, we have our DVD disc queued up and ready to go. 
This is on Hulu Plus and on Netflix. And, and don't forget, viewers, it's a long episode. Yes. It's also on CBS.com, or Star Trek.com, rather, for free, uh, with commercials. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting a Blu-ray soon. I think it'll look very nice. Uh, so, everybody, get your media ready to go. And we will press play in 3, 2, 1, press play. And we start off with a text crawl, uh, sort of setting up the basic idea. Cardassian Treaty has created outlaws of the Maquis who you know, are fighting for their justice or whatever. You know, We've seen this stuff in Deep Space Nine. We've seen it at the end of TNG. They could have done it as a voiceover. Yeah, it would have taken longer, I suppose. And our first characters uh, are Chakotay, Tuvok, and Balana. I think Chakotay is sort of the tragic muffing of a character story in Voyager's general arc. He shows up in this episode as such a badass, and he's cool, and you kind of like him, and then they just do nothing with him. You know, for so long that you become used to him being a big nothing. So the effects are really nice. You know, I like this small sort of battleship that they're uh, piloting. I mean, it's kind of different than the the runabout, and it's different than the the shuttlecraft. It's this sort of triangular bridge design. Uh, this is, is this the same ship that the Maquis used in the Maquis? The same external shot? I know it's not the same internal shot because that was much more of like a cramped shuttle type thing, but this, the external vessel looks the same to me. Well, I think it's the same model, but like these shots are all new yeah. with yeah. these torpedo yeah, totally, emitters. And, totally. You know, and and the, sh the shot of the Cardassian ship is also new. Now, this is before... The mirror episode with Tuvok. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So here's the visual effect on the Badlands, which is an area of intense plasma storms or something. Um, it's early CGI. Yeah, you know. It's a little creaky. It looks okay. That's certainly not the worst thing we've ever seen. The Kardashian ship has a blade. Of course it does. So, I mean, we could talk about the performances here, you know. What's the guy doing in the background? He's like got a screwdriver or something. Yeah, he's being an extra. Um, he's not talking. That's the most important thing. Right, otherwise we'd have to pay him. Is that Dennis Malone, the stunt guy? No, that's not. Um, I forget his name, but... All right, so here's an Okudogram. There's some sort of wave coming. I, I do like that the Okudograms are all clearly from the uh, TOS movie era. Like the blue and green. Yeah, the graphics uh, definitely read as older technology, which makes sense for the Maquis. So I really like Tim Russ's performance. He's very grounded. He, he reads as Vulcan. You know, it's like he's tense and stuff, but... His delivery is perfect from the first episode. I I think all of them are very much themselves. Already. Yeah, they're fully. No, no one goes through a TNG. Like the characters in Next Generation season one 
are different than season two forward. Well, and I think that has to do with Jerry Taylor creating a character Bible, you know, with deep backstories for these people. Um, well, let's talk about the theme song and the theme montage. I find this to be one of the, probably the second best theme song after TNG. And as far as the video montage, it's I, to me the best. I really like this, this sort of nebula cloud effect. And I love when it goes over the, uh, the planetary ring system and there's a reflection underneath. I, I like the way the uh, gas swirls when it's clipped by the warp nacelles. Yeah. That was, that was a nice touch. Well, and clearly this like ice chunk is CGI, but it's pretty decent. Yeah. Um, and the visual as a whole is very nice. This, I, lo I love the Jerry Goldsmith uh, theme music. The star field looks better here than in, I think, the TNG opening. Yeah, it's clearly a computer-generated star field. It's not an optical effect. Yeah. And it looks good. And I love that reflection. Yeah, that's that's gorgeous. Yeah, it's just calling out for a Blu-ray, isn't it? It is. We'll see if actually the, the CGI holds up to Blu-ray and whether they have to redo some of it. I do think Voyager's spacescapes rely a little heavily on nebular clouds Yeah, uh, throughout the whole series. And it's sort of the storylines. <laughs> well, okay, and I love, love, love this. I love that we're shooting back to Earth. I love that we're showing the seamy underbelly of the Federation. And, you know, as anyone who's followed Trek No Babble knows, here's my favorite character, Tom Paris. Yes, Kevin, it should have been Nick Lacaro, but... You know what? <laughs> oh well, actually, I think what the, the reason was they didn't want to have to, they didn't want to have to pay the writer of first duty for his <laughs> character, which they would have had to do for every episode. Yeah, yeah. So we have Robert Duncan McNeil and our first uh, look at uh, Captain Janeway, played by Kate Mulgrew. How do you like her hair, Kelly? Hate, hate the hair. You do not like the bun. No, I'm so happy when she chops it off. Oh, when she yeah, when she gets that cute little bob, I'm like, yeah. oh, thank you, thank you. There, this is proof that there are no gays in the future because no homosexual will let that woman walk onto the bridge in that hairstyle. So we're getting little bits and pieces here in very nice organic uh, dialogue. Uh, you know, Tom Paris is the son of a famed admiral, and for some reason. Captain Janeway is tapping Tom Paris as, you know, the guy he she wants to help her out, you know. Um, well, at least, you know, here we're hiring a pilot who's the best pilot. It's not like, this is your first officer who also happens to be the best pilot ever. Right. Well, he's a really good pilot, but he also has knowledge of this particular yep. cell of the Maquis. So it actually does make sense in story. You know, I like that it's, like, hot in New Zealand and he's, like, you know... Bearing his chest and stuff, you know. Robert Duncan McNeil plays Paris perfectly. He has a vulnerability, but he also has this exterior shell of you know trying to act cool, you know, like oh I don't care, but you can tell he really does, right? You know, it's just I love the Paris character. You know, it really speaks to me as someone who you know didn't always succeed right away you know, and needed chances for redemption, you know. So I like it personally, but I also think it really, really works just as storytelling in a way that a lot of previous Trek characters have not. You know, this is a screw-up, you know. Yeah. He's a failure, you know. And that's just so much more interesting to watch a failure redeem himself. 
than to watch someone who's always good continue to be always good. Well, and he fails along the way, too. Yeah. Well, and look at Wesley. When did Wesley become interesting? First duty. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know? Well, I, I would say maybe evolution. Yeah. You know? He started to become interesting when he started screwing up. Because that's what people do, especially teenage people. Yeah, you know, so I like the way that, you know, Janeway is portrayed by Kate Mulgrew. You know, she clearly is interested in him personally, but she's not going to be, you know, yeah. a doormat. Right. You know, she still projects authority no matter what. Man, I wish study at this. Seriously, I really <laughs> like this character. Like, I, I, they cast a good actress for this because... She looks a little like Marina Sirius. Right, where it's like, yeah, big... big Blush, dark hair, big dark eyes, like slightly exotic looking, and and I like that she and I love her attitude. Like just oh, the lines, you know, do you always fly at women at warp speed? This is a very nice shot of uh, the of the shuttle coming over the station up to the ship. Yeah, here's a lot of exposition for you. Like now we know everything about the ship. Right, fire under a circuitry. That's it's not a, bad. No, it's organic. it's organic. She's she's bragging about it because yeah. she's proud of her ship. Well, and she's bragging to somebody who would love to fly it but isn't going to be allowed to. Yeah, she's kind of sticking it to him. Yeah, this is a the beautiful composite shot. The model work is very nice. Um, I also like, you know, normally it feels a little hokey. It can feel a little hokey to have your predecessor series, um, you know, show up at the premiere. Yeah, blah, be the blah, bookend. Blah. Yeah. But this makes sense. Well, they're at the edge of space. They're in Maquis territory. Right. It know. makes sense that these DS Nine would would be here. And if you're if you need a Deep Space Nine actor to sell anything to you, yes, Armin Shimmerman. Well, this is Agreed. a perfectly written scene. It's it's perfect for both characters right. because Harry Kim is the greenhorn. You know, he's the you know the rube from right. the sticks who's on his first mission, and Quark is the con artist. You right. know, and so he's going to sell him. You know cheap trinkets for ten times what they're actually right. worth. You know, it's it's just a terrific piece of writing. And of course I watched Voyager before I watched Deep Space Nine, so I had no idea who Quark was. Hmm. We were warned about Ferengi at the Academy. <laughs> Armin Shimmerman plays this really well. <laughs> 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 his outrage is being played for laughs but he's also right i mean telling this telling i mean that was just racial profiling right there <laughs> well it's the kind of thing you know a 22 year old would uh, well, yeah <laughs> who warned you about Frank? I mean, it's played perfectly <laughs> this is being shot really well too with the little cutaways to Tom Paris's reaction. I'm watching it, yeah. I like the little prop touch of him taking the pad. He's allegedly writing this information on and just pivots it for his yeah, thumbprint. Thumb right. Yeah. It's 
It's interesting that Paris knows that. Because hasn't he just been in jail since he got out of the academy? I don't know. I, th I think maybe in the Bible he was supposed to have, like, done a little bit of freight flying or something. Right. Before he was finally arrested. But he also could be bluffing. Yeah, yeah. Well, which would fit his character. So we, we saw a flyby of Voyager. Uh, what do you think of the ship? Um, I, I always, from the beginning, I liked its um, sense of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, 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 it feels a piece of Starfleet design, but the leading edge of it. Like, it's not, it's not just a rehash of the um, saucer section and drive section. It feels... It, 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 the um, structure is, is much more, um, like, Excelsior-like because it lacks the extended uh, neck section. Yeah. And I like the way they reshaped the, the saucer. Can I ask a question? Why are they doing surgery on someone right as they're about to, like, take off on this mission? Yeah, these things happen. I recognize this Yeah, actor. this actor played the Roga Danar. Thank you. In the... Uh, Thank you. Genetically engineered <laughs> soldier. Wouldn't it be great if it were Roga like, <laughs> like, this is my job now. Try messing with me. <laughs> Be aggressive. I never noticed the nurse was Vulcan before. I never, I never paid enough no, attention. You'll never see her you'll again. Never see her again. again. Now that would have been handy for Tuvok when he went through his pond fire, <laughs> <laughs> or Vorik for that matter. Yeah. All right. So here's uh, this character detail for Janeway. She is in a relationship. H how old do you do you take Janeway to be here? Forty-five. I would say I would say mid to late forties. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the age of Kate Mulgrew at the time, which I believe was mid to late forties. Too late to have kids. But probably not at this point. You know. But we don't have any indication anywhere in any of Star Trek that you can have kids. Fertility later. has gone that much farther. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's around forty now. Well, I mean, it's up to fifty now, but not on a regular basis. Someone in Janeway's position who hasn't had kids yet is, is not going to have kids. kids. Yeah. Well, and they never make a big stink out of it. You know, it's like there's yeah. no episode where she's like, "I must have a baby," which right. is nice. <laughs> well, I also enjoyed this relationship here because it felt very grown up. It felt like the relationship two professional adults have, where this is the demands of our time. This well, is, I like her little yeah. sexual innuendo too. Yeah. It felt very natural. And that's that's my favorite Janeway line in this episode. At ease before you sprain something. I I don't know how I felt about this little note that everyone is addressed as sir. That seems oddly anachronistic for the Federation. Uh, I really like her ready room set. Yeah, and I like how it clearly connects to the bridge. Like it's clearly been built on the same soundstage. This guy looks super familiar. Oh, too. I know. This is going to drive me crazy. Let's. Well, uh, I've got it up here. Let's. Uh, you guys keep talking. Okay. It up. Um. We were talking about this earlier over dinner. Um. The bridge is nice. It's a very pretty set. It's a very big set. I think it's. It might be bigger in terms of square feet than than the D. Um. I I don't quite like how separate tactical. Ops and engineering are they're they're off camera and in the corners and I don't quite like that as much. I also find it interesting. I was I remember thinking I was intrigued by the idea that there were two chairs in the center, clearly not a chair for the counselor. Yeah, 
there will be no counselors. Uh, really good window effects here on the model. Every, every window has a interior space. Yeah. And I remember, I remember, I remember I really liked the, um, navigational deflector because that was the same one on the Phoenix. Commander Cavett was in the inner light as the administrator of the colony. Thank God. Oh, there's Vulcan Nurse again. One more time. Yep, we saw her one. And there's a Bolian. I like this uh, this mess hall set. Now, they do get rid of this giant replicator Whoa, bay yeah. and turn it into the kitchen window. Well, it's because they didn't have unlimited energy and right. stuff sometimes. This That joke landed a little flat for me, even as a kid, because it seems like he should know the level of specificity required at a replicator. He was raised in the Federation. Yeah. I love the sound effects all throughout Voyager, and they're established very well here. These The, the beeps and bloops. They're, they're very consistent. Well, and it, it just it feels right. Yeah, so, you know, again, this is more development of the Tom Paris character. I really like the notes they're doing here. You know, they're not explaining everything, but they're explaining enough. I do wish one day they had explained everything. There could have been a flashback. That probably would have been best in um, one where he's the solitary in the confinement. Yeah, action. totally. Yeah. I always thought they were ghosting first duty with even if they didn't do it. Like, but for the three dead officers bit, that he could have been talking about the events of, of, of first. Well, yeah, I mean, there was some sort of accident, which was actually caused by him, but he blamed one of the dead crew members you know, for right. the accident, but then was found out, which is essentially the story of the first right, duty. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, this line, him saying it's tougher on his father, I mean, he's lying. You know, yeah. it was tough on him because he always felt pressure to live up to his family name. Right. And he screwed up. You know, and so he's pushing Harry Kim away here. And maybe this is what launches, you know, a thousand fanfic, you know, slash fic uh, stories, but, you know. Yeah. Harry Kim is true and stalwart and resolute in his love for Tom Paris. I always wish they had portrayed the plasma storms as bigger because it just seems like, why not fly over this plasma storm? It seems to be like four starships thick. Why not just go around it? Yeah, maybe that's the only little place through it. Maybe it really is a light year thick. Yeah. Some nice okudograms yeah. here, you know, pretty well done. I like the lighting on this bridge. You know, this lighting seems like kind of what they were going for in something like Star Trek 2009, but it actually doesn't interfere right. with things it's you would want to do. <laughs> well, not lens flare, but just like having transparent surfaces with lights shining on your face as you try to read them, you know. Like, it's lit in a little more utilitarian a way yeah. than the D bridge. But it's it's really visually interesting. There's always an animation on screen. Yeah. Know? There's always a light blinking somewhere. 
Yeah, really good model work. The uh, yeah, it's it's a mix between model and I think animation in the windows because there yeah. is a physical model, but sometimes they do a CG version. Yeah. So these effects are kind of reminiscent of Star Trek VI. Oh yeah. They're not as good. They're yeah. no they're nowhere near as good. Those were optical effects, not yeah. CGI. So now we're getting. Yeah. Cabot didn't really brace for impact very well. Yeah. <laughs> he deserved to die. To be fair, Stotty seemed to do a good job, and yeah, she bought she, it. She bought it. That's too bad. You know, for for the number of times they play with alternate universe alternate universes in Star Trek. There was never an episode of Voyager where, you know, Paris wakes up and walks onto the bridge and there's Stotty sitting there. Like, I always thought that was a bit of a lost opportunity to really explore these other characters. Well, I mean, non-sequitur would have been yeah. the way to do it. Yeah. Because that would be, like, the ship without Tom Paris. I suppose those people would have died or something right. still. Well, there's a novel idea for you. Oh, yeah. Um, I did like the moment with Janeway and, and Cabot there. That was well done. I, I will say this, especially for a character who, you know, we eventually learn is, you know, came up through in Starfleet through the sciences. Kate Mulgrew has an unparalleled ability to handle uh, Technobabble. She's, she's just, the way she talks about her ship feels very real, and it did the entire series. She seems like an expert. Yeah. She doesn't seem like she's trying to remember lines. And that's a credit to the actress who has said many times that she hated... Technobabble yeah. and trying to remember. Although, if you see her in interviews talking about little, well, older people eventually coming up and saying, as a little girl, I was inspired by you to go into the sciences. And, you know, so she might have hated doing it. Right, but, but she understood its utility, yeah. So, we are 21 minutes in, and we've been given the hook, which is, you know, this flash of light has taken us, you know, the other side of the galaxy. So they, they've discovered the Maquis ship, which is also close to the array. The caretaker array itself is a really nice model. Yeah, yeah, really well done. Well, and I don't know about people who watched this, you know, when it aired, but I knew nothing about it going in. Yeah. And I assumed they were getting home by the end of the episode. I think I knew they were staying. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I think I, I had seen previews that say they're stranded. I think I still have the TV guides uh, with the alternate covers sitting in a box somewhere in my <laughs> parents' basement um, about the new show and that the hook was that they were stranded. Uh, someday Starfleet's going to learn that bridge panels are a really stupid place to store your fireworks. They must have been right next to Hey, those EPS conduits yeah. have and a lot I, of power going I, I like the Kevlar glove. That was... <laughs> I like that she fixes she her, her hair. hair. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. the captain, damn it. <laughs> okay, they lost their chief engineer, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, and so Janeway is capable of, you know, giving cogent orders in this kind of situation. Yeah. Here's our introduction to Joe Carey. Uh, poor Joe Carey. Hey, he lasts seven seasons. He was, had one day left until retirement. Yeah, literally. <laughs> one episode left. Yeah. Ah, here's the introduction of Robert Picardo as the Doctor. Tremendous actor. Yeah, yeah. Th this man is a gift. 
he he maybe it's just being bald, but between him and Armin Shimmerman, just two incredibly gifted actors who took parts that could have been ridiculous if done badly. Medical tracker. <laughs> It, I mean, it's interesting that this holographic program was designed to be programmed as such a dick initially. <laughs> like, look, I've got problems with the whole, oh, we left the computer on and it became, you know, conscious and sentient. Yeah, I left my desktop on over the weekend and now it's sentient and demanding rights. <laughs> but when it's played so well... Right, you just buy it. You yeah. forgive it. Yeah. It, it, you know, we just reviewed uh, Family Business. It's the same thing with, with Armin Shimmerman. The Ferengi are silly people, but when Armin Shimmerman just says that the you know talks about his culture so completely seriously, you just buy it. Oh, what that doodad is a reuse of something, and it's going to keep me up tonight until I figure out what it is. So you know, we've gotten a look at the engineering set in Voyager, and who's calling her? Someone in the bridge. Ooh. I thought it was Kim, unless Kim was not. Yeah. He was in Sigma. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff happening here. You know, people are being abducted. Yeah. I mean, it's just like this episode is, has been pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. For these past ten minutes or so. Well, and I guess this is the beginning of the Doctor's sentience. Yeah. He wasn't shut off. Yeah, I think the sickbay set in Voyager is the best of all the series. It's the most cohesive. Um, well, I mean, the TNG set keeps changing. Right. <laughs> and there's only ever, like, one main bed in TNG. Yeah. So here's some location shooting. Is there corn in California? Yeah. So, imagine somewhere. Of course there's corn in California. I guess California pretty much has every climate. Well, not every climate. Enough to go corn. It's like the Genesis planet, California. I love when there's an image that juxtaposes people in Starfleet uniforms scanning things with something totally anachronistic. Right. It's always just... It's fun. It just tickles me. Well, it's, it's a patron out of the original series. It's Spock on some planet that is mirrored Earth's development. and Well, yeah, or Star Trek IV. I kind of want lemonade and sugar cookies. We have lemonade. That's true. So, so whose fantasy is it was our town? Who, who, who caused this? <laughs> well, I'm thinking that this chick is out of Tom Paris's head. Yeah, she, she's a pretty lady. Um... Was this supposed to be, like, Janeway's, like, farm in Indiana or something? Well, it, it really makes you wonder, you know, like, is this something out of literature that's in someone's head? Right, or the computer, like... Because you can't really imagine that 24th century, even farm life, is like Looks this. like a hootenanny, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, well, it's, it's funny, like, it's like when you think about in every Chinatown, in every city in America, it's that same pagoda that marks the entrance, and I always wonder if that, that like, does it have that same feel of... Really? This, this? Like, like you couldn't come up with anything else? Like, it just... Like, it, 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 it couldn't have been more, like, middle America had... Or, you know, it like, could have been cowboys for the, like, attempt at, like, 
obvious Americana. I'm I'm glad we didn't try the thing they did in D Space Nine where like Cisco sees the rock face and Dax sees the park. Yeah. Well and you know, as a sort of shared group fantasy scene, this is just so much more grounded and realistic than like the prophet scenes in Deep Space Nine. Right, there's no there's no there's no mushy cam and Yeah, go to the root cellar. <laughs> I bet you'll have a good time, Harry. <laughs> I wonder what era is this supposed to be like 1950s I think even earlier well with her socks and shoes oh, like that's that, true it's those are like Bobby socks yeah maybe 40s man now I went double dates <laughs> It's an odd conceit that they can, like, try to distract them, but can't actually stop them from going in. Yeah, or redo the program. And right, why not just put up a wall or something? Like, why, why even make the generator accessible inside the fantasy? But, meh, I'm not overly bothered. No, it's not a huge problem. What I'm detecting here is a bit of an inconsistency, because Paris said that the crew was entirely accounted for, but now we're going to see that you know, a good... Oh, actually... No, this is the Maquis. It's the Maquis. Never mind. This is a really well-thought-out episode. <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> I've just gotten so used to, you know, picking apart J.J. Abrams stuff. But, yeah. Okay, now the townsfolk are evil. and <laughs> They've got pitchforks. <laughs> Someone should have a torch. <laughs> <laughs> that line's ridiculous, but I can't help but appreciate it. So we've got sort of classic alien abduction type stuff here. Things we've seen in something yeah. like The X-Files or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's a pretty good match. Yeah. Yeah. No complaints. Well, actually, I think that's an optical composite of the set that they're going to walk into right now. We'll see. Maybe yeah. they don't really show that. Yeah, maybe it is a matte painting. Well, it's got to be a matte painting for at least part of it. They didn't build a football stadium, like an arena-sized uh, room. So they've got the ubiquitous needle through the chest, which we've seen. Uh, did we see that in Up the Long Ladder? See, yeah. they, they did build a portion of the wall. There. Yeah, they, they built at least part of it, yeah. So, and Janeway has a moment's recognition that she knows for sure who these people are because she sees Tubak, but then it's too late. I really wonder about letting people's arms hang like that. I think that might cause a breathing problem. It's got to constrict the chest weirdly. Yeah. It's kind of like the asphyxiation of a crucifixion. Right. Oh, come on, Harry. Pull it together. I thought they laid that bit. That was laid on a little thick. You're saying that wouldn't freak you out? He's a wuss. 
He's been through Starfleet Academy. Hey, he went through a test specifically designed to terrify him. Yeah, his <laughs> worst fear. And that was before he was even a cadet. Who's that guy? He, he was at Ops. He has one of the weirdest brows no, ever. He has to have been a Jem'Hadar. <laughs> no. I was happy beyond my ability to describe that Major Barrett was the computer voice. Yeah, I mean, they did a great job of fitting this into the universe. There was there was never a moment from the beginning of the first scene in which I was like, oh, I don't, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. It felt right immediately. Like, to me, Deep Space Nine... You kind of got to get into the flow of it. Yeah. Whereas if you went straight from TNG to Voyager, it's like not right. not skipping yeah. a beat. Yeah, I, I I can see that. It's different characters, but the tone is rock solid. Yeah. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's what Kelly did. Well, I knew that Kelly really wouldn't like these Space Nine, so. <laughs> and you were right. I, I went straight to Voyager, and that definitely helped. Deep Space Nine, I think, was the last one I saw. So there's the new transporter effect. It's Good. kind of a meld between the glitter of TNG with a new sort of uh, separating blue optical element. Right. So that extra guy, his outfit is kind of bizarre. Well, it's kind of like generic Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's the, oh, who was it? Is it's not. I think it was a TNG episode where I saw that jacket. It might have been the Gatherers from Vengeance Factor or the Routians from yeah. High Ground. It's like a very generic terrorist cell outfit. It's what all the Rebels are wearing this season. So here's a mention of Latinum. Yeah, it's a nice standoff between uh, Jane Lynch and Cote. Well, and it's nice that she's shorter. Right, the woman but, has posture like a crazy person. Yeah, because but it she, doesn't matter. Right, she she definitely has presence. Well, she's willing to physically step in. Yeah. So maybe it was the computers that had this. Yeah. Maybe it was a holodeck simulation. <laughs> Of a stereotypical farm town with a jug band. <laughs> so now, I do think at this point in the episode, the narrative loses a tiny bit of steam. You know, it's like, yeah, there's been one abduction, and now there's like a second abduction, and it's like, eh. It seems like there was a more economical way of getting them on the the uh, Ocampan homeworld. Right. It also made me question the ethics of the caretaker because I understand, like his his whole thing, his guilt trip is that he inadvertently destroyed the Ocampan atmosphere and spent the last many centuries atoning for that. But then his method for trying to find a replacement has a mortality rate. People die. They yeah. just die. And that seems to go against the enlightened, moralistic view the caretaker is supposed to have. I think it would have been better to skip these caretaker scenes 
Although I like the setting and all that yeah, stuff, yeah. to skip this stuff, to go straight to the Ocampan homeworld and have it be more of a mystery, right? As to the fact that their culture is being, right? You know, ossified by this, right. you know, caretaking force. I mean, they they hint at the mystery on Ocampa, yeah, with the fact that they don't know who it is, right? But we, the viewer, have already seen the caretaker, so you know, they kind of jumped the gun a tiny bit. Yeah. I was not a fan of the compression phaser rifles. I thought they were a little over-designed. It felt like, oh, well, we need a new phaser rifle for a new show, and it just didn't... It's kind of reminiscent of the TOS phaser rifle yeah. that Kirk had yeah. in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. I don't care. He's like, oh? So this guy is supposed to represent the caretaker, I suppose. Bipedal species. Well, so here you go. It was necessary. This kind of aspect of the story was a little weird to me. Yeah. That particular individuals might have, might have something that the rest of their species doesn't yeah, have. Yeah, that, that's weird. Like, I can understand Bolana as the one Klingon in the group. Which is a story thread that's picked up again in the, the Phage Which has been much better done. This is interesting that Janeway is being sort of the badass, and Chakotay's like, all right, let's have a conversation. What can you tell me here? Yeah, usually the good cop, bad cop goes the other way. Yeah. It's an interesting cut to Chicote's face because you get the impression that he's thinking about getting back more than about, you know, yeah. we need to solve this problem. Yeah, I, I swear that the, the, the eyebrow man has been in something else in this series before. I doubt he's actually called eyebrow man. <laughs> They did say his well, name he does have a speaking role, so I'm assuming he's in the guest star. Yeah. Or co-stars. So here we are on Ocampa, which visually is uh, very starkly different. I think those tables might be a reuse from Up the Long Ladder. I remember those pipes. Yeah, yeah so there's a oozing pustule. So we're back to seeing Roxanne Dawson. Wait, she was Biggs Dawson when she, the show she started. Was she Biggs Dawson? Yeah, she was Roxanne Dawson later on after she okay. divorced Casey. I thought she was Dawson, then Biggs Dawson, then went back to Dawson. Yeah, we'll have to check. She's got some boobs hanging out there. I always thought I I always thought that Roxanne Dawson looked more attractive as, as Bolana with the head ridges. It just did something for her hairline that was very flattering. Yes, 100% agree. Uh, Scott McDonald played Tosk. Thank you. He also played Sub Commander Nevek in Face of the Enemy. Uh, he, that he was, was 
That would have driven me crazy for the rest of my life. Thank you. He was co- coaching Marina Sirtis on how to be Romulan. Yes. He is Ensign Rollins in this episode, uh, Garanagar in Hippocratic Oath, and he also played a uh, one of the Zindi in the Enterprise. In Enterprise. <laughs> so he actually one, two, three, four different series. Makes an obvious Romulan. If they practically don't have to give him brow, brow makeup. <laughs> yeah, the middle part of this is mushy, because it's like, I don't really know enough about the Ocompans yet, or we don't even know what they're for, but it's kind of like... There's a 47 in the first episode. <laughs> I really like uh, the relationship between Tuvok and Janeway, yeah. and they establish it here. So there's no nucleogenic particles in the atmosphere. She's studied thousands of M-class planets. Okay, this is one of those times where there's enough science for this to make sense. I do think, in fact, almost any particle in the atmosphere could be the surface on which rain forms. I mean, dust in the atmosphere could do it. Yeah. But I like that they thought about it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, some sort of terrible catastrophe could strip valuable things out of an atmosphere. So, you know, it's not bad. Yeah, this is nice dialogue. You know, she cares about getting her crew home. He left his clarinet behind. I guess he must have replicated a new clarinet. Yeah. I think there's a line about that somewhere. Yeah, that he spent his, like, credits for oh, a week. Oh, yeah. yeah his, his replicator rations. Yeah, she's playing tired well yeah. here. And, and this is good captainy dialogue. This is this is a. I mean, you know, while it's reminiscent of the cage with Chris. Well, I was going to say, speaking of a page out of TOS with their captain and her Vulcan friend, this is a this is a page right out of Kurt's playbook. That kind of overt concern. Like P- Picard was a more thoughtful, you know, philosophical captain, I think, but I think Kirk was far more overtly effusive when it came to his feeling of responsibility to his crew. Well, I think that both Kirk and Janeway sort of feel like the parent on the ship. Yeah. Janeway even more so. Yeah. Not just because she's a woman, but because she feels a little bit older. Well, it really is the perfect dynamic for telling a captain's story. You know, if you've got a crew of 200 or 500 or 1,000, if you're the captain, the single captain on the ship, you are the most experienced officer in any realistic universe in which things make sense. And so I'm not going to go on a screen. Kevin knows what I'm talking about. So does Kelly. But Dogs know what you're talking about. So, but it makes sense that, you know, a particular kind of captain. Some captains wouldn't feel it at all. Like Jellico. But, but any captain who did have that kind of, you know, right. empathy would feel a sense of stewardship over his or her younger, you know, uh, fresh uh, right. ensigns. Especially, especially in this situation. I thought this scene was a little weird. Like, and here's a debris field. Like, it, it just, 
it's like, well, time to introduce the last character in the cast, or penultimate character in the cast. We haven't gotten to cast yet, but it just seems like, and literally, out of nowhere, here's some debris. <laughs> it's interesting that he has like a camera. Like a camcorder, Like a yeah. webcam or something. <laughs> Hail Mr. Neelix by Skype. <laughs> See, I actually like some of this dialogue. I agree, and I know initially I felt Neelix was annoying. He grew I on me. I love Neelix. I, be- I believe oh, he grew on me in a big I believe way. Ethan Phillips is a sufficiently talented actor to overcome it. And especially in his, his scenes as, like, surrogate father for Naomi Wildman, I find him delightful. And by the end, when he leaves the ship. Yeah, that, and, oh. I was actually mad that he left in the second to last episode. Like, yeah, he should have stayed on the ship. Yeah, like, it, made almost, it almost made no sense to me. No, but it was a sweet story. Oh, it totally was, but it just didn't make sense to kick him off the show before the finale. He got, like, two seconds in the last episode. Yeah. No, and there were interesting stories to tell about him... Adapting to life. Well, instead of them being the fish out of water, him being the fish out of water. I mean, it's a really, it's a good performance. Yeah. Um, And uh, I just listened to this podcast with uh, Jerry Ryan was interviewed and she talked about um, how her costume was very uncomfortable, but her makeup was pretty easy because it didn't have to blend in. It was just you know, stick the Borg stuff on, but that Nathan Phillips, like, the only part of his face that is not covered by latex is his lower lip. Literally every other bit of his face is encased in things, and he can't, like, move his eyes more than a certain range or blink a lot, because it's, like, that restrictive makeup. And he does a great job through that makeup, because he's very expressive. Totally. I mean, especially for one of the headlining aliens, you needed to do something more than bumpy forehead. And I, I gotta say, the, the best Star Trek aliens tend to be ones where you can imagine the actual creature they might have evolved from. And you can totally see some, like, Hedgehog ch- like chameleon-ish lizard people giving rise to Neelix. So, you know, we're getting this thing about water. Oh, well, this is the transport. We haven't gotten to the water yet. But yeah, I, I, yeah. No, no, he was asking, oh, do they in exchange, oh, do you have water? And she's like, yeah, we'll give you all the water you want. So, you know, we're getting this thing about scarcity in this place and now about this vastly superior technology. This transport room is really nice looking, yeah. too. It's got to be a redesign of TNGs. It's got to, I mean... Well, those those lenses are from the Klieg lights that were in, I yeah. think, both TOS yeah. and TNG. I like how he calls him Mr. Vulcan here and keeps calling him that for the rest of the series. <laughs> That's a pretty cool fur coat. You know, normally I can't stand men in fur coats, but that one's not bad. Yeah, that is this. This is the transporter room from Star Trek Six, which Tim Russ was also. No, he was in Generations. Yeah, though he apparently was in Star Trek. <laughs> he, Six. Well, he was in Star Trek Six <laughs> off screen, which we'll see later. A what? <laughs> that looks like the the ceiling looks like. The sick bay ceiling. Yeah, um, I, maybe they repainted it, but 
Yeah, when she's not in uniform, you can see she's actually pretty stacked. <laughs> Those uniforms do yeah. tie it a lot of. Well, yeah. Well, they 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 cut you off. With the, they're very flattering on men because they color block your shoulders. I will say, I think um, Roxanne Dawson is at a. It's it's kind of like early Kira. It's not as bad as early Kira, but this is. This is a nine and a half, and she'll eventually bring it down to about a seven and a half, and she'll get much better for it. Well, she'll, you know, fall in love later, so it softens her. <laughs> well, well, like all angry women, they just need a man. <laughs> <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> she also she also refers to him as Starfleet in the balance of the series. Yeah. I'm just saying. I think she finds a. She makes better choices for um, interpreting her Klingon behavior. Actually, much more in line with um, Susie Plaxon, like you know, like I, who I thought did a heartbreakingly beautiful job of doing it, only not to be brought back. So she's like Klingon and Latino. <laughs> Man, talk about hot blooded, right? <laughs> I'm picturing the mambo scene from West Side Story. It'd be great. <laughs> All the Puerto Ricans are lousy chickens. Oh, uh, this is another guy who's been in everything. All right, so maybe we'll find out the... Uh, So now this is an office building, I believe. Oh yeah, it's got to be that that that's the atrium of a software company in in you know Silicon Valley. Well, not that. And that's a mad paint. <laughs> that's a very nice mat. It I, is. It's a it's a, it's 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 a big mat. People moving in the foreground. Well, it evokes the idea of a self-contained biosphere very well. Yeah. They always do this thing in. I understand why, because years aren't all the same, but talk about generations. I don't know how long 500 generations is. Like, I sort of have the concept in mind, but I can't wrap my brain around it the way I can years. Yeah. So how do you feel about Ocomp and fashion? Uh, they're, you know, they... It, they did it cheaply, but... Yeah, like, there, there's a look. Um... It's a little Joan Jet. It's a little. Looks like prune sludge or something. Four point one intervals. What does that mean? Yeah. See, like, how can they? Yeah. Do their younger people crave things? Well, I think that's supposed to set up like the idea of Kess. And this is a great visual, but okay, like, is but, this what they watch on before, TV? <laughs> before you mock it, the two most popular shows in Norway right now are a seven-hour train ride from Oslo to Bergen and a burning log. Yeah, that's Norwegians for you. <laughs> it's like the hypnotic frog on <laughs> Hypnotoad. <laughs> that's genius. 
See, I, and I still don't understand the mechanism of this disease. How does checking to see if they have some capacity to help him reproduce give them this disease, whatever it is? It, it just seems... I'm just kind of mystified by what the caretaker is trying to accomplish by infecting various people. I mean, I guess I don't really have to know. Well, I, I assume it was some byproduct of attempting to reproduce. Using yeah. It. But it also seems just incredibly unethical to both kidnap people and possibly kill them in this attempt when, as we see... And his, rape them, too. So. Yeah, yeah. And it just seems really weird, given that he feels the obligation to help the Okampan who he hurt earlier. I like the hallways in Voyager. The handrails seem a little uh, uncomfortable. But they look cool. Yeah. So Neelix has gone uh, whole hog on the replicators. I assume this is just like craft services stuff that they yeah. piled in. I think it was the bathtub singing that initially annoyed me a little about Neelix. <laughs> like, it's funny, but it's... Ah, uh, Mr. Vulcan. Yeah, you know, Tim Russ plays yeah. the straight va straight man Vulcan to the T. <laughs> See, he doesn't annoy me yet. I think it's when they introduce the Kest dynamic that it just gets kind of creepy and weird and it turns me off. Yeah, I can see that. Um... Well, Neelix never bothers me. The relationship bothers yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. I I suppose I question the like I I I can more readily accept the lack of transporters and replicators, given that we you know witness a Star Trek where transporters and replicators are either non-existent or not as common. I have trouble believing there's just limited water on this scale. Well, so it makes sense. For the Ocampan planet. Right. But, but it doesn't not, make sense that the Kazon would lack water. Right. You know? Like, are, why would all these different planets in the region be dry? Right. And wouldn't that, like, severely inhibit, like, wouldn't that inhibit... Evolution? Right. That would inhibit the development of the technologies that would let you become a spacefaring race. Like, you need water for everything, from agriculture to industry. Yeah. That was an interesting line. He like said, "Will it make me uniform like yours?" And Tubak says, "It certainly will not." You know, I wonder: Are the replicators somehow programmed? Like, to is know, there like, DRM on the replicators? Like, I have this rank, and you know, like right. you should make me this uniform. This is not the best meta. It feels it feels a little obviously mad yeah, to me. But I like the visual. Yeah, yeah. Um, Neelix seems really overdressed for this climate. Uh, this seems to be a reusable location that was in. Uh, Final Journey? No, Journey's End? Yeah, no. Kazan Ogla, Final who are mission. the Kazan Ogla? Yeah, that's, that's the best line of the episode. Kazan Ogla? Who are the Kazan Ogla? Well, it's uh, a fun name to say. Horrible race to look at. Okay, so the Kazan. You know, in the Jerry, Jerry Taylor stories, mm -hmm. was it in the novels that she established that it was supposed to be sort of like gangs yeah. with different colors and different, you know, affiliations. Yeah. It just never came through on the show. 
You know, I mean, they talked about the different sects. They call right. them sects, as if it's some sort of religious thing. But they never give us any religion, you know. And they never really different. I mean, granted, there might be costume details that if you really paid attention, right. you'd notice the difference. But it's not clear. Well, the ch- like the the hair with the bits of stuff in them, and well, I mean, I guess it's like kind of like. Uh, dreadlocks you know which actually kind of weirded me out as a kid i'm like are they are they supposed to be well they can't wash their hair yeah yeah well i i think the stuff in the hair is supposed to have decorative meaning right. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's just a fundamental flaw in setting up the Kazon in the premiere like this. Yeah. Such that you feel they can't possibly challenge. Right. Like, how do you run starships without water? Or, or like, without the ability to find water? They just seem, like, so bedraggled. Right. That they're not a credible villain. I mean, he seems nasty and stuff. I'm not saying, like, it's... It's, it's by it's no not the, it's, it's not the it's Ferengi, not the Ferengi it's not the in uh, what's last the, outpost. The last outpost. You know, they, they certainly didn't flub it to that degree, but they, there's a problem in the way they set this up. Yeah. Every method of persuasion he knows. Like, they were in a relationship before this? I don't see how that'd be possible. Yeah. Like, I assume this relationship was formed as he was, like, helping her out. Yeah. See, I always kind of read it that he knew her before this, which is why he's willing to go to these lengths. Yeah, that's how I read it. Well, I, I, I think the book establishes that they were, like, he, he he frequently came to trade at this outpost, and that's how we met her over several trips. And like, yeah, that may be the case. Okay, now this effect, this practical effect of the water pouring out, the way they shoot it with the camera angle, it becomes obvious that there's just a spigot spraying water. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, See, they're all they're already canoodling, thing. you know. Yeah. Well, it's we, especially once we get. He promised he'd save her. They, they were they were definitely doing it before this point. Before they this point. Necessarily doing it, they were. But they, yeah, but I don't think they were doing it before. They were like romantic before she was captured by the Kazakh. Because I thought that was like coterminous with her. Yeah. Leaving the okay, so that's settlement. what's left unclear in yeah. on screen here. Yeah. And it always seemed weird to me that. They would be in a relationship, then she would be captured, you know? So it makes much yeah. more sense if she was captured and then they were in a relationship. Right, which is well, how I think Maybe not a relationship relationship, but like, you know. Like bonding. He's seen right. her right. and right. like whispered corners said, yeah. I'll save you. My my problem is, especially once we establish that the Kess, that the Ocampan lived for nine years, it's like they never, and they never quite, um, explain like the arc of case of of a maturity 
yeah, do they do they reach sexual maturity at like one year and then they look this old when they're seven? I mean, you know, they don't explain it. Yeah, so there's like a an underground movement, right, to leave the city, which makes sense. Uh, you know, in any any science fiction stagnant culture story, there's the young upstarts who want to see life on the outside. Yeah, so you see, I think all this mysterious stuff would have been better if we hadn't Just already started met, here. If yeah. we hadn't already met the caretaker. Right now, the only mystery is why the caretaker is doing it. Right. Not who's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, so we're setting up the basic uh, kind of rescue conditions, you know, for these characters. There's going to be a giant... Yeah. Uh, you know, shaft, and you know it's going to be hard, and you know, <laughs> sorry, it's, just, it's going to be difficult to traverse. <laughs> Look, I'm not the one laughing here. <laughs> so we're getting a view of the dermal regenerator here. He's fixing a black guy. I never like this wig. It's really, oh, it's really obviously a wig. <laughs> I like that look he gives her right before he disappears. Yeah, that hair is terrible. Really bad. I guess it fits with 1995 or whatever, but... <laughs> no, they should have given her a Rachel. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go there. <laughs> Every time I see the her, Janeway's hair from a new angle, I like it even less than I already did. Like, it's so complicated. It doesn't make sense for a character like her. Right. Well, and eventually she does just sort of go into a bun. It's not this complicated. I still don't like it, but... I mean, I guess it's supposed to indicate that she still has a feminine side, like she cares about her appearance. Well, then she should get the basket weave beehive like like Janice Rand. <laughs> Here's a different view of the matte painting. Or a different matte painting. Yeah. Different view of the Ocampan colony. Uh, I guess we're looking at farms here. Which, like, why are there farms if there's that organic sludge that they yeah. eat? Yeah. Well, I guess these are the young people the with new exotic tastes. Where they get the plants from is, you know, I don't know. What do you think of the Ocampan makeup? I always thought the ears were a tad overdone. Well, they're like elves or something. Right. The, my other problem with the Kess is that once we establish that they live nine years, that seems to be treated as a short time even by the Ocampa themselves in their own internal assessment of their life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it, it seems like the one misstep, 
Are there interesting stories to be told if you artificially limit a character's lifespan, such that in the, the span of a show, they'll definitely die? Right. You know, I, I suppose. I mean, but even before it was clear that Kess was leaving the show, or that the actress was leaving the show, I don't think they did anything with it except the one of, like, reproduction story, which bothers the hell out of me because there's no way that civilization could replace itself if every woman can only give birth to one child one time. Yeah, maybe the men can do it, too. Ooh. There, there's a story. Well, they eventually told that story in Enterprise. I think the my, my problem with the costuming is it's all it's all monochromatic gray brown or brown gray. It's like I understand they're supposed to be like a boring people, but they're laying it on a little thick. Well, so I mean I like this stuff and this was in the, the Jerry Taylor novel, this you know, she's like rebellious, she wanted to see the sun. Like all this stuff is very reminiscent of For the World is Hollow and I have touched the sky. Yeah. In the original series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, having this uh, ossified seat, there's the shaft that's hard. Um, it's pretty big. Thank you, Kevin. Um, <laughs> Those lights are pulsing, throbbing. Even. Yes, throbbing. <laughs> anyway. So that's kind of why I think the mystery could have been really interesting yeah, and really yeah. evocative. You know, if they showed us more of these people straining against, you know, this mysterious right, controlling right. force. You know, for some reason, every time I see the Ocampan Village, did you ever, uh, I always think, do you ever see uh, the original Aeon Flux cartoon on MTV? Yeah, it is reminiscent of that. So this is a nice vulnerable moment, you know, for Bellana. And actually, this is a nice line for Harry yeah. Kim. Yes, this is uh, introducing Bellana's yeah. Academy washout status, which again I really like. Yeah, you know, it's just it's nice to have a cast that's not all superheroes. Although she is kind of a superhero engineer, she just couldn't she's, handle school. Yeah, she, but she is just a superhero engineer who actually was an engineer when we met her. If that makes any sense, like if. Like, that was her yeah. skill set in the academy. That was her job in the Maquis. So it makes sense she'd be a gifted engineer because she's talented and forced by circumstances to be resourceful. And that is the first and only escalator I I've ever seen. Just thinking that. <laughs> it's the only escalator in Star Trek. No, wait. I think there were some in motion picture in Starfleet headquarters. That's but, right. But still, that is that is just a straight-up escalator. There there should be, like, a like a Claire's and a Forever 21 at the top of that thing. <laughs> They should really start capitalizing ancient tunnels in these subtitles because they refer to them a lot as a place that everyone seems to know where they are. I would think the ancient tunnels would be like where Ocampan kids would go to make out or something. <laughs> He's got a really major role in this episode to never show up again. Yeah. yeah. 
terms of the seal of conduct, the seal of seal that we no longer intended to use to protect the economy. Ah, all right. So what's the hypothesis? All right, lay it on me. Caretaker is dying. This is a really good internal space. It's very big, lots of layers in the background of the shot. Well, and it's nondescript enough to be anything, yeah. yeah. Is this the inside of the water reclamation plant that they use for everything? No, no. I, I think it's mentioned in Memory Alpha that this is the atrium of an office building. Hmm. I wonder if they just walked the same thing like twice. I believe they did. Because they just ran out of space to have more. When you look at the lighting yeah. quality, it definitely seems that way. Definitely doesn't look like my office building. Alright, Paris is going to mount the hard shaft to find Harry Kim. <laughs> Just wait till we get to shoot. Yeah. Who? That's an episode of Oz right there. This one's mine. <laughs> no one touches him just yet. <laughs> that dude is all over the bridge. He was an ops. He's a con. He's like the only one left up yeah, there. Yeah, he's like the only one doing stuff. And he's just an ensign. Uh, his eyebrow just can't solve everything. So the transporters aren't working. Naturally. These things happen. <laughs> hey, there's a great idea where they could just beam home and invent an interstellar transporter. <laughs> We're never going to not be bitter. It's just never going to happen. Surely even that couldn't go all the way to the Delta Quadrant. <laughs> Alright, I'll say this. With the exception of the horrible boxing episode... There is not a sink. Even Threshold is better than Into Darkness. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the boxing episode is pretty bad. And then they did it again on Battlestar. Did we learn nothing about boxing? And Threshold is a really good half an episode. It's a fun and a fun one to watch. It's just when you think about it, it falls no, apart. It's a great character story. They just failed to resolve it well. So here's our... Uh, We've been told it'll burn your skin off. Nobody tested that? This is kind of an unflattering uh, pose for <laughs> Jennifer Lean. I don't like her outfit. It feels like something... It's like something like Pebbles Flintstone would wear as a teenager. It's probably a Project Runway. <laughs> like the unaired Project right. Runway episode. <laughs> right. That would have been a great Project Runway episode, design a Star Trek costume. <laughs> <laughs> I'd win that one. <laughs> you remember how to sew, right, Kelly? Well, sure. maybe you could be one of the uh, the models. Yeah. They would bring in real Star Trek fans <laughs> who want a costume designed for them. Totally got a right to Tim Gunn and suggest it. <laughs> Those rocks look... That was the same Celtrus 3 rock slide from Chain of Command. They just had that, like, on cue, ready to go. This is a pretty good use of the Planet Hell set. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not obvious, you know? Yeah. It does seem like they've gotten to the top of the large shaft, and now they're ready to burst forward, you know, out into the world.
I wonder if they dug like a seven foot hole just for these. Yeah. Because it definitely looks like they're they're on the ground. Or they're like they're outside. That this is. A well, thing. they're at the location. That, yeah. That's that much is clearly obvious. So I want to hear about the resolution to this pustule disease that they've been infected with. I think the doctor just cures it. Cures it, it yeah. So this is our second chances moment here. So here's my thing mm -hmm. about, you know, I would say the last half of this episode. There are plot aspects that I feel are a little mushy, a little a little soft. Yeah. Um, but the character stories always still make sense. Yeah, the characterizations are solid from this point forward. Well, but I just mean in, in the space of this episode. Yeah. I'm still... I'm invested enough in the characters to care that, you know, Chicote can't move and Paris is the guy that's going to rescue him. And, like, they have this animosity, but this is like Paris proving himself, Yeah. you know, as a, a hero type. It's also, I remember this felt very reminiscent Generations. of the, uh, yeah. Especially like when they close when they do the close up on the like broken nuts and bolts. Yeah, I, you know I like that they're at odds with each other. You know, so whatever problems I have plot wise. Yeah. You know, I'm still engaged by the emotions. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that people in the future still misunderstand Native, Native American, American culture. <laughs> well, it makes sense, though, because, you know, as we're going to be told, well, actually, as we have been told in TNG, several Native American tribes have just left. Yeah. So they would still be mysterious to people who stayed on Earth. And he calls them Indians. Well, I mean, it, it, would, it wouldn't make sense to call them Native American. It would sound unnecessary. Like Star Trek tends to ignore extant geopolitical lines, except for some uh, references to the Soviet Union. Well, at some point, uh, it'll be renamed Leningrad again. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, All right, so here comes the – oh, wow. Alana got dressed again. And that's a kicky little outfit. I, I love that. Little <laughs> little bolero and those, like, thigh-high boots. It's like, yeah, you – Yeah, they should have kept them in Mikey outfits longer. Yes, I agree. I, I mean, I think eventually putting them into Starfleet uniforms makes sense, but they went there too quickly. Well, I think that's a criticism of the first season that they did a lot of work to set up this idea of a persistent divide between the Federation of Maquis crews and then just 
didn't do anything with it. Well, they they abandoned it for 15 episodes, and then they did the learning curve, yeah. learning curve episode, which was quite good. Yeah, and it could have happened at episode two or episode three. And yeah, been just as good or better. But there's that Barkley episode where his he, version he, yeah. of them are still in the Maki. His conjecture is that they stay separate. Yeah, so this guy, Jabin, is now on a spaceship. Right. So like, does he have anything to drink on his spaceship? Yeah. Did we even have a line of dialogue about them getting cured, or they were just in sick bay, so everything's We assume they're fine. I, I, I know at some point they established that the Kazon steal their ships, that they are... They well, they, they rebelled from a race that had held them as slaves. Right, and then they took the ships with them. Which is actually pretty interesting. Yeah. And had they established that one or two episodes in, it might have been much more interesting yeah. to have Kazon episodes. I like how they show the phasers there. Uh, th- these are all really nice. Oh yeah, shots. and good battle sequences. Like it, the caretaker ray is a good, interesting backdrop. Though that the antenna bit is clearly the like model tree bit of you know like the plastic trees and the, yeah, that come with the models. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mr. Paris is gonna pilot the ship. Yes, man. Man will do in a crunch. There, this is crunch. I kind of hate that whole thing. What? The not <laughs> wait, sir, wait, it's ma'am, but sometimes it's captain. No, I don't think she said it's ma'am. I think that was Harry Kim who was trying to find an alternate to sir. And then she said only, only in a crunch ensign or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think, I think she's being... She prefers captain. Yeah. She seems overly complicated. Why is it still this? Because it was too expensive to build another set. <laughs> well, they're, they're actually going to change it to the other set pretty soon. So the Kazon are attacking... I mean, did, what do they want? Do they want the technology of the Array or of Voyager? I would assume either would be fine. Why haven't they... Because I think when the caretaker was at full strength, it would have been impossible. Okay. Alright, so this is the caretaker's motivation. They're explorers from another galaxy. See, this is what makes me question the whole, like, kidnapping impregnation plan. Like, he clearly has... Yeah, he cares enough. Yeah, he has an ethical center that is, you know, similar to ours, that if I were to accidentally destroy the atmosphere of an M-class planet, I too would feel a burden to to, um, help them out. So it's just, it seems odd that he would then turn to an even worse thing to do to try to ameliorate it. I like, I like that they did finally go back and find the other character. Yeah, sure. I wasn't a huge fan of that episode no. in and of itself, but it, I did like that they followed up. 
Yeah, you know, it's like, couldn't you just program some computer to... Right. Well, couldn't you also talk to the Okampa and explain what you've been doing? and <laughs> have, have them hey, run the how, yeah, Come live on my station. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe... It's just not explained very well. Maybe something specific about his powers and abilities powers the station. Only he has the Wi-Fi password? Sure. Maybe your children would be better than you think. We won't find out. No. It does seem like an odd time to have this conversation, like, while the battle's going on. How do you like the Kazon design? Yeah. That's alright. Need more time to have this heart-wrenching conversation? Yeah, a little heart-to-heart. Yeah, so this is the um, decision that basically melds the two crews. They destroy their ship in order to save Voyager, which is Chakotay's decision. You can ride my tail anytime. Yeah, so it's well staged yeah. space battle stuff. I mean, it's certainly big and detailed. I just don't care. <laughs> okay, we've now that's a really cool yeah, shot. We have now achieved the point where inertia will carry you the rest of the way because that's how inertia works. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, that was well done. They did that really yeah. well. And it makes Chakotay seem pretty cool. They're pretty badass. Random extra, we'll never see that. And now he has free run of the ship. Yeah, well, Bellotto was just on the bridge. I mean, I understand they're in a crisis. Maybe there's a certain air of informality. We don't even know who's in control right now, though. Janeway's off the ship. Is sounded Paris like, in charge? sounded like Harry Kim was in charge. But I don't think that can be the case because they make a big deal out of him having his first command later. Right. So the caretaker has already initiated some right. destruct. That looked a little cheesy to me. It didn't quite. Yeah, I like it. I like how they showed sort of the sheared away decks of. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Ship. That looked. It, it just it, the the compositing of the individual elements looked showed showed the seams a little for me. It's a pretty decent effect for a blob. Yeah, they're always blobs. Well, it's a sporocystian life forms. So that's what they look like. Duh. Ah, here we go. The self-destruct program has been damaged. 
That's a bit arbitrary. Yeah. So I like the basic moral question, you know, yeah. should we sacrifice our happiness to save another race? I just feel like it wasn't carried out in a super effective story. Yeah, story. yeah. Do they know for sure that they could have sent themselves back? I mean, uh, they don't I, know how to operate the array. Well, I think they could have figured it out. Well, I, you know, I guess the question is, could they figure it out in enough time to prevent dozens of Kazon ships right. from overrunning them? Right. Or could they be sure it was destroyed after they were gone? All right, here you go. Here's your prime directive question. Yeah. Would it? Would it really? I mean, if you want to get hyper-technical about the Prime Directive, wouldn't that also bar them from using the technology anyway? To get home? Yeah. But it was used to bring them there. True. I don't know. Yeah, I see, mean, I think the Prime Directive is not in effect here because they were brought there by right. a warp-capable species. And he's made his intentions clear. Yeah. Yeah, so I like that she argues. Yeah. She's my captain. Oh, captain, my captain. I mean, presumably Chakotay is acquiescing to this because he agrees. Well, because he's a Starfleet officer. Right. That, there are a lot of former Starfleet officers on this Marquis ship. Well, that, you know, no, I mean, makes yeah, a certain yeah. amount of sense. Okay, well done effect here. That was That's a great explosion. It's actually one of the best explosions. And I love that they come back to this in the Voyager Conspiracy. Yeah, that's a great one. Love that episode. A friend of mine arguing about NSA spying actually referenced that as why. <laughs> um, it's sp spying doesn't actually help you catch criminals because it only increases the likelihood you would draw false connections between an overabundance of data. I don't understand why they're withdrawing here. There's nothing left worth fighting about now. So no, why risk it? They should take over Voyager. Yeah, that's true. They should get replicators and <laughs> they water. Would, they would drew because the script says so. It's, it's like right here at the bottom of page 46, case I would draw. Well, and so that's... Not, I'm aware that's the actual problem. Yeah, so, you know, they really very quickly have just told us that the Maquis are becoming part of the crew. Right. You know, we've gone from a minute ago to now. Right. See, now here's a field promotion. 
I believe the naval tradition is the field commission lasts until they get home. Yeah. Until they're out of the field. See, that would have been a great finale for Voyager. Is like Tom Paris magically suddenly has no rank. The Maquis are to jail. Yeah, the Maquis are, are arrested <laughs> because, like, as far as the Federation is concerned, those matters are not resolved. No, what the deal was once they returned right. from their mission, right. he was cut loose. But he still wouldn't be a lieutenant anymore. Yeah. I mean, he did graduate the academy. Yeah. So he's more qualified than Bolana. New Kirk. To become uh, captain of the Enterprise. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so he's getting a little annoying here. But I think a lot of my annoyance was based on just being younger, being like a snotty teenager basically he's by no means as bad as a jar jar no let's say. no i mean don't let's not say things we can't take back i mean she makes decisions quickly well, she's decide. she's yeah. the decider yeah she's the decider <laughs> someone should print up a mission accomplished banner they can hang it in the mess hall So this is the speechifying portion of the episode. I mean, I love this. I just still question the sort of starfleetiness of making that decision. Of taking on vagabonds? No, no, no. The destroying the array. Oh. <laughs> they look like they've been working together already. Behind the scenes. Hey, that, that, that console covers you from the waist down. See, paraphrasing the Star Trek intro. <laughs> sure, that's a directive. And not and not calling it an oath <laughs> agrammatically is fine. <laughs> also, she's acted like a Starfleet captain this whole time. She's earned it. Nebula. Which we will find at about the rate of once every four to five episodes. Well, and you know what? Neelix delivers the line. You know, he says, you know, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> if I see an anomaly in space, I go away from it. So that's our basic setup for the show. We're going to go home. We're going to remain a Starfleet crew. What do we think about the angling warp nacelles? The 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 explanation I was I always read quasi canonically was that um, it uh, counteracted the effect that warp has on space as identified in Force of Nature. Sure, why not? <laughs> uh, you know, it, I always took it to just be a design detail that was intended to look cool. I, I always find it a little bit superfluous. It seems like one more thing that could go wrong. Like, it, there's no... Like what if the hinge broke? Right, there's no reason not to leave them at the 45-degree angle when you're traveling, because... Well, I, I took it to be a function of this ship being supposed to, supposedly faster than anything else in the fleet. Like, 
because it can go warp 9.975, mm-hmm. like, it maybe they'll overheat if they're always, I don't know. You know, it's never explained. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not the worst design choice in the history of the franchise. <sighs> we won't go there. Um, <laughs> so, writing-wise, you know... At, I think as stated at the beginning or before the beginning of this episode, the characters are not flawless, but you know, extremely well done. Yeah. Well drawn, well realized, good lines of dialogue to show us their, their attributes and their features. Mm-hmm. You know, some good character drama, especially I would say the standout character stories are the Tom Paris story. Um, and probably the, the Janeway story. Yeah. Uh, I think they're the two most fleshed out characters mm-hmm. in this episode. So I really enjoyed the writing on that level. And even the ones that aren't totally fleshed out yet, you've got little notes about Harry Kim forgetting his clarinet and his mom yeah, calling yeah. and, you know, Bolana's Klingon side. And- yeah, you're given enough detail to really latch on to him emotionally uh, from the get-go. And none of it's ever contradicted or dropped. It's yeah. It's all really cohesive. Yeah. Um, I think we identified the problems with the writing in that the middle bit kind of loses some energy and the mystery's a little mushy. Um, I think in the balance, I think this is a four in terms of writing, much like much like Encounter at Farpoint, where you know there was a really good story um, in the queue uh, setup. They just took a long time to get to the space jellyfish. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that was a, a melding between two really disparate stories. Right. You know, this one, I I think it could have been tuned to be a bit more exciting. Yeah. You know, and to be a bit less creaky or arbitrary seeming in well, terms they, of things that has to have to happen. They needed an episode and a half, not two episodes. Not one, that's too short, but, you know. Trying to stretch it to two, I think, is well, where they lost some of their momentum. I think they could have spent five or ten minutes on Maquis versus Starfleet stuff. Yeah. You know, it was just so quick. Yeah, so I think things could have been reorganized a little bit. I mean, if nothing else, what I think Voyager could have done with the Maquis is give us a little more teeth to the Maquis idea. Because on some level, these aren't, you know... Like, the way they describe the colony, certainly in Space Nine, it's like, you know, they went there, they stayed there for a generation or two, and then the extant border with a horrifying enemy flares up again. So your options are, your 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 best option seems to be, go to one of the many other worlds in the Federation and live an equally idyllic agrarian life if that's what you want. I never quite bought the Maquis' desire to remain, especially given the eventual consequences. So I, I really would have liked some development of why the Maquis were fighting so hard, because it's not like there's a dearth of paradises in the Star Trek universe. They run across one about every week. So it just seems like, I never, even the, the Indians on Doorman 5 and Journey's End, it just, that felt a little, the explanation always felt a little rote. Well, it's like we're spiritually connected to this world. Well, wasn't that the case with Earth? Earth, right. You you got in a ship and you, you left another one. Right. Do it again. So I, I really would have liked something a little more deep explaining why the Maquis fight. And that could have been something that was built in this episode. Because other than that, it's just like, oh, well, we're not happy with the treaty. It's a treaty with a horrifying enemy. It's going to vaporize you from orbit. Your options are somewhat limited. 
So that would have uh, punched up this episode for me. But I, I, I stand by my four. I think the character writing is strong enough to make it an above average writing story, above average story, despite the problems we've identified. Um, you know, acting. So apparently, there are a lot of people who dislike Kate Mulgrew's Captain Janeway. They're wrong. I agree. My my problem with Voyager was never Janeway. It was never woman as captain. It was like I think Kate Mulgrew is actually until Jerry Ryan comes along. I think between um, Robert Picardo, Kate Mulgrew, and I think in an episode or two, Roxanne Dawson, they are doing the heavy lifting. Like they are, and I. I don't respond as much viscerally to Tom Paris, so I always tend to forget him, and that's not because I don't think the actor does a good job. I just don't respond to him the way you do. But I like I think when it comes to like Kate Mulgrew's a great actress, Robert Ricardo's a fabulous actor. Uh, I think yeah, um, acting was never a problem for me on this show. I mean, I think I never liked Harry Kim, but I think that was as much the writing. It's not like I don't think Garrett Wang was bad. Yeah, they just never put. And in this episode, I think Robert yeah, Beltran was, was great. Yeah. When it's clear that Robert Beltran has checked out, it gets a little tedious, but... Well, they stopped focusing on him, so it doesn't really matter. Right. He's just sort of there. He's like an extra who talks sometimes. Right. Um, Speaking of extras, even the extras were... I, oh, yeah, Scott McDonald, he's great. Forget the Kazon for a moment, but, yeah. the, the, you know, the other extras... I think the acting job on the Kazon was fine. Oh, yeah, Jabin yeah. did his job. Yeah. He was the villain of the week. Um... He seemed mean. You know, so, yeah, I think it's at least average to probably quite above average. Yeah. And effects-wise... Yeah, certainly above average. You know, there's a few... Like, the Badlands didn't look great, but all of the ships looked great. Yeah. All the battles looked great. Um, the location shots they did. Yeah, totally. The Ocampo office building. Well, the farm looked good. The office building looked yeah. good. The desert looked good. It, you know... And we have to rate Voyager as a set, yeah. you know, in this episode. Yeah, which is, and it's great. Right? It's a terrific set. Yeah. So, you know, this is among the best production value uh, episodes, I would say. Um, I think this best uh, emissary in Deep Space Nine, as far as visual appeal... Yeah, the the rock face scene was a little bland, and I've never been, and I, I'm on record as not being a fan of the oh the prophet stuff. Ugh. It's like it's like filming through molasses. Um, um, and you know, Encounter at Farpoint had some terrific effects, but it also had some serious '80s cheese. Oof. Like yeah. this is pretty much perfectly realized. If you watched a season seven episode, you wouldn't think, oh, this looks like a season seven episode, and this looks like a season one episode. Other than the hair. I, I look, okay, the hair is not great on Janeway, but otherwise, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? No, I agree. I it's agree. like the visual tone of the show is established and fits perfectly and never wavers. I'll give you which, that. Which, yeah. that's saying something because they didn't have much to improve on. Like, yeah. it looks great. It's a great-looking show. Yeah. Um, I, I think in the balance, the episode in total is a four. I, th I think the acting is very good. I think the effects are very good. I think the creakiness we identified in the story and the kind of, you know, lower energy the middle third gets, <laughs> excuse me, uh, I think make it a four. Yeah, overall. the writing maybe is what keeps it from a five. Yeah, yeah. If they had really dug their teeth into the ethical issue, you know, is it acceptable to sacrifice people we don't know and don't really care about 
for our own happiness. Well, and in PNG, you would have gotten in a scene where they were all around the really conference table it. and they were debating it. That, and that's what that you don't really get could here. have helped yes. this episode. So part part of that I think is because they tried to keep things so action heavy that there wasn't time. Well, right. and she doesn't have a you know. She doesn't have a group to appeal to. She's not a first officer. She, right. she doesn't have anyone. She I also think they didn't get decisions. a comp. I, I think there might have been a little knee-jerk, we don't want to do just what TNG did, so I think it was the next episode where it's like, all right, we actually do need a conference room. Well, I think there should... When Bellana, you know, resists Janeway's yeah. idea, that could have been like a five-minute scene right. with people on both sides. That could have been a source of conflict between... Not necessarily the two crews, but portions of each crew right, on, on each side. Right, right. That would have been really interesting. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, you know, given that the Maquis are fighting for their homes, you could understand them. They want to get back to the fight, or, or they could also understand. I won't consign another people to the fate we're fighting against yeah. to get home. Like there's, yeah, there's so many nuances that could have been brought into a, an argument, right? A knockdown, dragout argument. Yeah, and you could have had people form alliances over that argument right. that could have lasted, you know, for at least a portion of the show. Right. So that's that's a real missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, but I agree with the four total. You, you can't deny the acting and production values. Yeah. You know, and the writing is at least average. Yeah. So yeah. you know it. It seems like on balance. That, yeah, I, I remember thinking, okay, I want I want to watch this next week. Yeah. Well, I mean, so Kelly. Watched it, I guess, after watching TNG. Yeah. You know, and I didn't really tell you much about Voyager. You know, no, so. No, I think you said you thought I would like it. And you were right. So you liked it based on this episode? Well, it's an intriguing concept. I was definitely worried that it was going to be Gilligan's Island for a little while. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you can't help but worry about that if there's a right. crew that's stranded somewhere, but I was intrigued. Like Janeway right from the beginning, so yeah, yeah, I definitely think that this episode set me up to want to watch more. You know, we're gonna get to Enterprise sooner or later. Um, <laughs> no, there are a lot of good things. No, about there Enterprise. are. There are. I'm I'm just trying to think about whether it was as effective a pilot episode. Um, I remember. I don't think I. I was so. Stuck on the <laughs> the opening the fact credits that it was called the Enterprise, or, or having a like for yeah that did bother me, but also that the theme song had words that I kind of needed to watch the episode again before I really thought about it. Um, I like Broken Bow. It, it established to the extent that the characters were ever established on that show. It established them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think although we gave Encounter at Farpoint a four, I think that was given a four. Because of sort of like cheesiness and you know some bad acting notes yes. and you know some pacing problems. You down on your knees to people like this, yeah. That that's well, you know, work. pain and loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was nothing like that here. Yes, I, I feel like I like Farpoint better because I feel like it had more high-concept stuff. I'm never going to separate out my nostalgia in a meaningful way to, anal to, to, if you, to, to, to analyze it objectively to assess its value. I think I can separate out my nostalgia. When you're asking me to compare two different episodes, especially ones that we've given the same score, 
I think I'm, I must recuse myself because I don't think I could undo my fervent love of next generation in analyzing like what do I like encounter Farpoint more as well. But I think that might just be because every time I think about next generation, it's, it's, I, I just get a glow yeah. because I love Fills it so much. Yeah. Happy warmth. Yeah. Well, the, the opposite so of pain and loneliness. What's interesting for me is that the way Matthew introduced me to Star Trek, Encounter at Farpoint was not my first TNG episode. Mm-hmm. And I guess it wasn't your first no, either, no, Kevin. No. Whereas Caretaker was my first. I watched Voyager right. straight, straight through. through. Yes, yeah, as did I. I didn't start you with Farpoint? No, I guess maybe I no. didn't. I don't think so. Maybe you did. I feel like I would have had to yeah, I think you introduced the characters. Yeah. Maybe, but I didn't go straight from there, so maybe that's... Hmm. But yeah, I think I agree with what you said, though. I do think Encounter Farpoint encompasses. It's got more mind blowing side. Well, also, and here's this isn't really a problem with Caretaker, it's a problem with Endgame. The whole ethical dilemma for Janeway is do I break Starfleet rules to get my Starfleet crew home sooner? She answers no, and we have a series. Her solution in Endgame is to do exactly that. See, I don't don't feel like the Starfleet rule thing is really at issue here. I feel like she has free reign. But what I'm saying is, if, if we're going to commit a ethically questionable act for the benefit of the crew in Endgame, to like presumably those 20 years that now don't happen had positives as well as negatives, and yeah. you know, if we're going to undo that for our own personal benefit, why not just go back in time and change your decision in Caretaker? It just it well, seems but then to, she'd be screwing the old company. I'm just saying, well, but she's screwing other people, presumably the ones we just haven't seen on screen. Yeah, it just she's fixing them. I'm just saying, it it, it seems to me. Whereas, whereas next generation, given 20 years of you know brooding, maybe she's changed. Maybe her character has changed. It's, it just seems to negate the point. Like, if nothing else, and, and, and ironically, one of my criticisms of the show tends to be Janeway's solution is always, we will do it the Starfleet way. And she is pretty much always right. And I think that gets a little bland in terms of storytelling. Like it seems like the whole point is it, can you do it the Starfleet way? Is it, can you survive this way? And then the answer is, well, yeah, you just do it the Starfleet way. And it's always works out better. Cause we're nice people and nice things happen to nice people. Um, pay it forward. Exactly. Um, but yeah, setting, setting aside <clears throat> grander comparisons, this is a very good episode. I enjoyed watching it. I remember thinking, okay, I'm I'm intrigued. I want to see more of this. And um, I remember I had read up a lot to the extent it was possible in pre-internet era about what the show was about. So I knew most of the character sketches. I remember they the thing that they talked about for ages was that the Doctor was going to get the name Zimmerman within like the end of the first season. And then that never happened. And I kept waiting for it to happen. <laughs> yeah. And... Eventually, his name was Joe. I think we undid that. Oh, it was Joe in the alternate future. Right. That's true. Um, but we did meet Lewis Zimmerman. Yes. Uh, anyhow, yeah. uh, I, I think it's pretty soundly an eight. I think yeah. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a rip-roaring start. And, you know, actually, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in season one to look forward to. So None of it involves the case on. That's, Yes. But Some it of it involves coffee. The only stuff, the only reason the Kazon were those Kazon storylines were at all worthwhile is more Martha Hackett. Her departure from the show is a sin. Yeah, no, I agree. She's really good. Uh, so we'll get there. Um, yeah. Let's end this podcast now. Uh, you know, it's an eight. 
from Kevin and uh, me, uh, and I think sounds like Kelly basically agrees with the assessment. Yeah, I mean, I said I was probably going to do letter grades so as to not interfere with the number scheme, and it would be like an A minus for me. B plus? A minus slash B plus. B plus plus, you know, like when you, I actually got that once. The teacher was really indecisive, and I'm like, that's not a grade. I I don't either it's eighty nine or it's not. But I I read fellowship essays yeah. and you know so my own internal ranking system that doesn't well, do mean you, anything do in the outside an, world and I do do like B plus plus plus. Do do you have an A plus that's not just you know, uh, decorative like? Is yeah, it, no one gets an A plus from me. But an A plus is actually the full hundred percent. Yeah, but no one okay. gets that. Okay. Well, I'm just curious because for some people A is a hundred percent and the A plus is just. And an exclamation point, but I, I was just curious because that that, that kind of tells you what your A minus is. No, when I give A pluses, it's that's one hundred. Yeah, that's perfection. Ninety nine is an A. Okay. Ninety one is an A minus. Ninety is an A. Well, maybe only ninety is an A minus. Okay. I just don't do that. Yeah. It's kind of... In any case, this is in the A minus B plus ish. Which which range. which I believe is how you would define an eight on our scale. Yeah, there are flaws. It's quite good. You know. All right, so we will be back next week for Parallax. Yeah, which is an okay episode. Yeah, it's also got issues, but it does have some decent sci-fi. Um, and we're also going to be doing uh, what's the next episode after that? Time and again, you know, they went to the time travel well pretty early, but it wasn't to bad effect. I don't. No, think. it was. It was. It was good. I like that one. All right, so. We will, we will see you for the next review here at Trek and Babel. Uh, so uh, have a good night. Yes. Live long and prosper.